Dreaming of a warm and sunny place to retire or relocate? For many Americans, places like Florida and Arizona come to mind. Well, there are snowbirds in England, too. And where do they go for the winter? The sunny Mediterranean. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. For many of my English friends, starting over in a sunny locale has meant more than getting used to a new climate. They're learning a new language and adopting a new culture with gusto. To learn more about this European snowbird phenomenon, I've invited three of my British expat friends to join us today. They're here to take your calls and tell us what it's like to resettle on the continent. And later in the hour, we'll venture to Latin America and hear from a man who knows all the latest on world-class skiing in the Andes and up-to-date surf spots in Costa Rica. Whether your dreams have you retiring in Tuscany or skiing in the Andes, we're taking you there today in style on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves takes us from Southern Europe to South America. We'll hear in a moment from three of my British friends who each decided to start over in Spain, Italy, and France. We'll learn the ins and outs of resettling in a Mediterranean culture. And later in the hour, we'll head south to Latin America. Imagine taking a ski break in the Andes during our summer. We're mixing and matching travel thrills today on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for coming along. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I want to talk about traveling in a little more permanent sense, well, like moving in, like leaving our country, like becoming what they call an expat. I've invited three expats, uh, English people, British people who live in Spain, Italy, and Burgundy, and we're going to explore the ins and outs of making a new home overseas. We have with us Helen Inman, who's English, living in Spain, and also has lived in Greece, and she works as an English teacher and a tour guide. We have Tricia Brady, a Scottish woman who lives in Italy, and for uh, over 20 years she's been a, a tour guide. And Bill Higgs is an Englishman, and he lives in Burgundy, and he's a barge captain, and he uh, takes people barging around France. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Did I get your thumbnail bios correct, I hope? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much so, yeah. Great. Now, I'm just going to let you each explain how you ended up where you did. You've left Britain, and you're, it sounds like, very happily situated on the continent in Europe. Yeah. Uh, Tricia, what's your story? Well, my family is Italian, and I worked so much in Italy, and I just decided the way of life was perfect for me at this stage in my life. The cost of living is better. The quality of life for me was better than in Britain, for sure. And uh, I decided to buy a ruin and restore it. The quality of life, the way of life. In, in a nutshell, how does it differ in Italy from England? Well, in Italy, people don't earn as much, but they use their time in a better way because they do not work so much either. So hmm. leisure time is important, time with family is important, and that affects the entire society in Italy. So that puts Britain somewhere between Europe and America, I think, because yeah. uh, in the United States we work so much and we make so much money that uh, Europeans would say, well, you're kind of missing the boat. So you can go into that more romantic, enjoy life, slow down, smell the roses, uh, don't make quite so much money, and Italy's you find a good place for that kind of balance. Absolutely. There's not many places you see entire families out walking of an evening making what we call the passeggiata and men walking around with their coats on their shoulders and just window shopping. How long have you lived in Italy? 
I've lived there now six years. A good choice? Been great yep. choice. Great very choice. Happy. All right. Helen, mm-hmm. what's your story? Uh, I was always very interested in learning languages. So to actually go and have sort of total immersion in Spain, I was also in Italy and in Greece. It gave me the chance to pick up the languages and find more out about the people. And I found that I really like the Mediterranean temperament, the, the Latin people. Very friendly, very spontaneous, very warm. And I've made some very, very good friends down there. And uh, as Trish says, very much the, the standard of living, very, very good food, more leisure time, and a more sort of spontaneous approach to life probably than in England. So you're Scottish? I'm English. You're English? Okay, yes, I'm, I'm English, yes. And I'm sorry, Trish is Scottish, and you're <laughs> English. You like the Latin temperament. So I do, Now, yes. how do you uh, sum up the Latin temperament compared to the English temperament? I find they're very spontaneous. Uh, they have a sort of... Perhaps the less, res- I mean, it depends on the person. Some British people are extremely extrovert, but the Latin people tend to be more outgoing. Um, perhaps it's a little bit easier to get to know them. And they're also very curious about people from other countries in Italy and in Spain. They like to find out. English speaking people, they get excited. They like to practice a language on you, and they're very welcoming as well. I find them very welcoming. Now, you are all British people choosing to live in Latin Europe, Uh meaning people that speak Romance languages, right? Uh Isn't that what the definition of Latin Europe would be? Yes. And what's the other side of the European coin? If you're not Latin, are you Germanic? Sort of Anglo-Saxon, would you say? Germanic or Anglo-Saxon, I guess. I think we kind of say Northern European and Southern European, really. So so you're refugees from the Germanic and the (laughs) Anglo-Saxon Europe. I guess so. And you've all embraced the Latin lifestyle. I think that's a common denominator. And you're all like evangelical about it. This is fascinating for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Higgs, you're an Englishman who is uh, enjoying living in Burgundy in France. Tell us your story. I certainly am enjoying it. Um, I spent a year traveling around the States, and during that time I thought I would like to work with tourists on canal boats, out-of-door work. I returned to England, worked in a wine shop, happened to see an advertisement for a job working on boats, which was in France. So I fell into France. It wasn't a conscious decision to go to France. So I followed the advertisement, I did a year's work out there, came back to England, and I suddenly realised over the winter back in England how much I had enjoyed my time in France. As uh, Tricia was saying, different lifestyle is really um, quite important, I think, especially respect of food and respect Mm -hmm. of timing, not working quite... Working hard, yes, but not so intensely. It's not necessarily the goal. And... um, you live that, to work or you work to live sort of thing. Exactly. I mean, in Europe, they do it. In, yeah. the, in the Latin world, they yeah. do it a little differently. Yeah. It takes courage to to just burn a bridge and jump right into that. And I think I think all of you eased into it. You tested the water and you realized there's a real reason to reconsider where I call home. Mm, that's correct. What's yes. the biggest frustration mm. for living in the Latin world? Well, the word organization doesn't exist in the Italian dictionary. <laughs> no organization in Italy. <laughs> Helen? I think perhaps um, some assumptions that because you're initially... If When you first arrive and you don't speak the language very well at the beginning, they think that you would rather hang out with people from your country and maybe, you know, they assume that you're, you know, you're always going to want to eat fish and chips and watch Coronation Street, whereas absolutely not. I mean, I would prefer, a, you know, I would prefer a tortilla, you know, and hang out with my Spanish buddies, not because anything against the British, but if I wanted to be with them all the time, I would have stayed at home. Now, you're a beautiful yeah. blonde with a saucy British accent. <laughs> What, what's that like in the Latin world with all these dark guys that chase women like dogs, chase well, cars? I think it really helps when you start to speak the lingo because then you tr- they treat you very much as a local. And sometimes I find now, 
maybe it's an attitude in the street, but now they come up and ask me for directions sometimes. When I first got there, I didn't speak the lingo. They would try that sort of like, uh, you know, the sort of uh, sexy Spaniard approach, you know. So treat you like a tourist looking a for little a little bit. A, a yeah. Time. And nowadays I find that like almost a little bit insulting, not because they approach rudely. I think they're quite they're quite polite on the whole, but I like to be considered a, a local almost now. I like to be considered one of them. Are you considered a local? I think I am. In your town in Spain? In Madrid? Why not? Yeah, yeah. why not? Tricia, are you considered a local? On a Tuesday morning when I go up to the market and I have a grappa with the men in the bar. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> some of the time. And Bill, how do the, in Burgundy, do people have a, a big wall against welcoming a, a Brit into their Burgundy community? Not at all, not at all. As long as you can be patient, I think patience is very important and realize that you can't just throw money at problems like hmm. sometimes in England or here in the States we think that will work. A well-timed glass of wine offered at the right moment, and it has to be the right moment, can be a lot more valuable. Now, that's a very fundamental trick. As an American, I would think there's just an answer with money, you know? And in in, in Europe, that might actually be counterproductive. Oh, very much so. Mm. Very much so. Definitely. I would would suppose half the expats don't want to be part of the local community. They want to go down there for better weather and and cheaper food and uh, maybe some other reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they they stay in their communities. You've got people with their English radio stations on the Costa del Sol and their English churches and their English golf clubs. They kind of stay apart, and I guess they manage okay. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to be part of the community, to be accepted... Mm-hmm. What would your advice be? I would suggest make a big effort with the language. Definitely. Uh, yeah. I suppose some expats can be there 10 years and still not speak yeah. the language. That insults the locals, really. It can do. And I think some on some people, I mean, if you live there 10 years, you've had no excuse, really, because if you, you're on one-to-one experience every day with that language, you have the immersion, you have an opportunity there. And I think just to assume that everyone speaks your language... The locals don't always appreciate that, do they? And that's not to say you have to be very good. You have to be seen to be making an An effort. effort. An effort. Even a stumbling effort Mm. is so important. Mm -mm. I think you mustn't go with a mindset of a British person or an American person. If you're going to live in another country, you have to go into their mindset Mm. or you'll never be really happy there. Yes. Now, you all have traveled a lot, and you've all chosen Spain, Italy, France, three different countries. Mm-hmm. If somebody is just daydreaming about relocating to these countries, how would you differentiate the welcome you'd receive and the challenges you'd, uh, you'd incur going to either of these countries? Can you make any generalizations? Uh, well, obviously in France, a love of food would certainly help, and it is like a common currency. You must understand in France, it doesn't matter which sex you are, what age you are, Mention food and you have somebody's attention. You can mention food in the middle of negotiations, getting a loan at the bank, and it will help it move forward. Yes, I think it's a common denominator in Europe generally. I mean, people don't understand. Don't go if you're a vegetarian. In Italy, they don't understand vegetarians, really. So a teetotaling vegetarian would have a tough time, I suppose. (laughs) They'll always cater to them. They don't understand it. But you're a different Mm. species, almost. Absolutely. And it's getting easier slowly in France for vegetarians, but it's got a long way to go, that's for sure. All right, I'm speaking with... Helen Inman, who's an English woman living in Spain, Tricia Brady, a Scottish woman living in Italy, and Bill Higgs, he's a bargeman from England that has settled in Burgundy in France. Now, all of you have lived many years in your various countries. Have you opted for local citizenship? What's the wh- What do people do in that regard? No, I haven't opted for it because being an EU citizen, I don't think it's really uh, necessary unless I want to vote for the president in France. That's the one thing, of course, I can't do. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't really bring any benefits for me as a European already. 
Helen, uh, Britain, Spain. I have my residency permit. And to be honest with you, I use my British passport on some occasions and my Spanish residency card on others, whichever suits the spot. So I'm kind of going with both possibilities. Uh huh. Trisha? No, I find that the British bureaucracy is much simpler than the Italian bureaucracy, so I've stuck British. Good reason to stick with that. And in day-to-day living, there's no real um, insurmountable hurdles because you don't have the local passport. Tiny discount off some bills. Um, okay. But other than that, no. For an American, would there be any advice in in that regard? Can you become an expat without uh, having to take local citizenship? Yes, no problem. It's really no problem. All right. And how do you keep in touch? Is it easy these days to keep in touch with your relatives and friends back in in Britain? Well, I guess now with Internet, it's very easy. On the telephone, you get cheap calls out of Europe to Europe, so it's very inexpensive. The big change in the last few years is the uh, cheap phone calling now and, of course, the Internet. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and traveling generally is a lot cheaper with uh, some of the airlines. airlines No frill airlines, that makes Europe. And the EU is just really into people mixing it up and moving around. No borders, Mm. cheap flights, no uh, restrictions on where you study and work and so on. We'll hear more from Bill, Helen, and Trisha on being a British expat on the continent, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. You can reach us at 877-333-7425, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Later in the hour, we'll head for the hills, big ones in South America. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking about becoming an expat. And I have with me three friends who are refugees from the Anglo-Saxon world where time is money and people work harder and make more money. And they've settled down in the Latin part of Europe where they speak the Romance languages and where people can enjoy a a nice walk, a passeggiata, paseo. 877-333-RICK. That's the phone number. Or you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm speaking with Helen Inman from uh, Spain, who lives, they're all from Britain, but Helen lives in Spain, Tricia Brady, who's living in Italy, and Bill Higgs, who's living in Burgundy, on a barge, and Eric on the line in Hoboken, New Jersey. Hi, Eric. Hey, Rick, how are you? I'm good. Um, Yeah, actually, uh, I've traveled to France almost every year, at least once a year, maybe twice a year, and my mother actually retired to Paris, so I, I spent a lot of time in France, and I'd like to buy like a small apartment, probably in Nice or somewhere in the Mediterranean, and maybe eventually retire there myself. But I'm 40 now, so I'm not thinking about that right away. But I, I wanted to know if anyone on your panel or if they have any advice about 
um, having a place there but not always living there. If you leave it unattended six months out of the year, are there property managers? You know, I, I don't know if I'd want to rent it, but is there a way to maintain it? And then I'd also have to pay like my maintenance fees if it's a condo, that kind of thing. Any experience here? Well, I do have an idea for you, Eric. I don't know how you feel about having people come to stay in your place maybe for a week. But if I was in your shoes, I would be very interested in trying to do a house swap with someone for a week or two in the area where you want to buy down in Nice. Mm. You would get to know somebody very well. They'll be living in your place. You'll be living in theirs. You'll have a trust for each other. And in the future, they could be an inroad for you to finding someone to look after the place you eventually want to buy. Mm. So that's what I would do. There are also, you'll find in most uh, countries in Europe, that there are plenty of property managers and English-speaking ones too, and probably even Americans have moved down there and they're doing that as kind of a sideline. So, And they do turnarounds if you rent the place out. So I think you'd find that pretty easy. I've seen a lot of websites, and th- but it's, it's hard to know what's legitimate and what you can trust. That's why I was calling in because I thought you might steer me away from some of the pitfalls of just going blind to one of those agencies. Yeah, it's true. It is a big risk um, because you don't know whether it's going to be particularly good or not. Bill, talk about the JIT program because I know a lot of people buy a cottage in in a town, a small town, which has some tourist charm, and they live there for their vacation, but they let a local person manage it, and then it's sold out all year long as people, which is very common, they rent it by the week, and it's a self, what do you call it, self-catering cottage where they've got a kitchen. Yeah, it works very well. It's very simple. Um, People... As you say, they're just coming for a week, so they're usually respecting the property. You're not having someone living in it for a long time, so the property stays in good shape. And the locals, this is what's very surprising. In my case, the locals seem very pleased to see holidaymakers coming in, enjoying France, and then going away again. So it's a very positive way of bringing foreigners into the area. And keeping some of these villages viable, which are about to become ghost towns. There's a real problem in France of cute villages becoming ghost towns. And it's not just, of course, the rental side of it. It's the whole uh, maintenance and uh, conversion of the property in the first place, which can provide a lot of employment for the local artisans, which, of course, makes you quite popular. Also, there's the opportunity just to buy a cheap, run-down, little one-bedroom condo in some of these old buildings, for instance, in Nice, and yeah. where it's very expensive to go to a hotel. I mean, for the cost of a hotel for two weeks... You could almost rent a, a cheap little apartment for three months, I would think. I know a lot of our guides have little hangouts where they're just basically uh, studio apartments in cute towns, uh, a little bit away from the tourists, surprisingly inexpensive. Yeah, that, that's actually what I was thinking about is a very small apartment just to have someone to crash. So a lot of the books I've read about this, it, it talks about having a nice house in Provence or something, and I, I'm not going to have that. Mm. So. I don't know if the advice But these apartments, uh, Eric, these apartments are so cheap, you could almost just lock it up and, and spend two or three months a year there. Okay. And Eric, I wouldn't worry about leaving places unattended. You'll find that local neighbours particularly love to help you out. And that's your way of getting in with the locals too. So. Yeah, you do them a favour. I mean, you could even let them, let their visitors stay there while you're gone and then they owe you mm-hmm. and you've got friends. Yeah. You say, hey, i got mm-hmm. an apartment in Nice you Absolutely. can use. You can, yeah. you know, trade a few hundred bucks or something. Yeah. But basically, you could find yourself a cheap little studio apartment. Uh, I know some people who rent apartments that don't even have uh, a toilet. There's a toilet downstairs that different people use and yeah. these are for ski bums and so yeah. on. But you'd be surprised how nice it is to have a little base as a springboard for your European exploration. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Thank you. All right. Good luck, Eric. Good luck. Chris on the phone from Tacoma, Washington. Hi, Chris. Well, hi. 
And what are your thoughts or comments or questions for our panel on becoming an expat? Well, I uh, I don't know if they could comment on this because I imagine, uh, you know, American might be a little different. But what about a medical emergencies? Uh, how do they handle that? Can you go to a local hospital and have it paid uh, somehow uh, through your plan from back home? Or? Hi, Chris. It's Trish here. Um, no, your Medicare as far as I know, it doesn't cover you in, in Italy. But any emergency is covered anyway. Everyone is covered in Europe for emergencies. Uh-huh. If you had to go into a hospital for something, then that would be a different matter. And of course, you'd have to have insurance. But all over Europe, if you have an emergency problem, you go to the hospital, they fix you up. And I, I believe even for Americans, it's free, isn't sure. it? Yeah. yeah. And, and people in Europe just go, sure, why not? I mean, it's national health care. So uh-huh. now you guys are, are all part of the EU. What's your health insurance situation? Well, um, in France, uh, it's Bill here. I'm covered by the work that I do in France. But even if I wasn't, as um, we're EU, we respect each other's country and they have a sort of swap arrangement where things are finally reimbursed if need be. But um, I, I can't comment on the other countries. But from France, I would reassure you that the standard of Medical care is fantastic. Uh, without knocking the British system, if I had to choose between one or the other, I would rather have my illness or operation in France. And is France more or less nationalized in healthcare? Its funding is um, much greater than in Britain. However, the British system is very efficient, so we're wrong to knock the British system. Right. But everybody in France also has a private top-up insurance, virtually everybody. A lot of Americans are covered with their health insurance here, but it's an out-of-pocket expense over there. You have to get the proper documentation, you pay for it, you come home, and you are reimbursed. But everybody has different kinds of health care. You need to look into that. If you don't have health care that covers you over there, you can certainly buy it. That's a standard kind of traveler's health care insurance that's quite reasonable and quite good. Okay, thanks, Chris, for your call. Thank you. We got Leslie on the line in Vancouver, Washington. Hi, Leslie. Hi, how are you? Great, thanks for your call. Are you thinking about retiring in Europe? Well, I'm getting close to uh, the planning phase of retirement, and yes, it's always been very appealing. I have not traveled over there. I'm formulating a plan for two tours, and I'd like to have some kind of research material to look at or people to talk to, places to go, to look into what the cost is for retiring over there, especially on a single retirement income, and which places are really more affordable and where might people be more accepting, you know, of of Americans after what we've all been through lately. Just some pointers on how to begin research for this so that when I actually make it over there, I have something to work on. That's a great idea just for anybody. If you're just exploring in general, what are some good resources? We have a magazine in our country, I think, called International Living. Yes. And have you had any experience with that? Uh, yes. Hi there, this is Helen speaking. And I think it's online as well, internationalliving.com. This is kind of useful. This is an American publication, and I was very intrigued to find it on the Internet, so I put out a subscription for it. And it gives a lot of information uh, specifically towards American people living abroad, and it covers the whole world. I mean, they go Uruguay, they go Ecuador, they go France, they go Spain. And I think it has a lot of information which might be specifically linked to your situation as an American citizen. And I find it interesting as well because they really investigate well into each location. It was interesting to me too. I think that could perhaps help you out. So there's one, internationalliving.com. Mm-hmm. Any other sources that people could explore their options from becoming an expat? Hi, Leslie. It's Trisha here. Um, hi. Hi. I think you'll find it depends where you want to go. I mean, that's something you have to kind of decide yourself. 
For example, for Italy, we have an Italy magazine, which is available, I'm sure, online too. It's a British publication, and it gives all the detail of the different websites where you can look. And I personally think they're all pretty trustworthy, to be perfectly honest, the ones I know in Italy. And you could find that there if it was Italy you were interested in, for example. I think it would be wise, Leslie, to consider yourself almost a Brit, a British person, when you're exploring your options, because Brits are very comfortable at moving over to the continent. And and there's parts of France that are just like little Britons now, I mean, down in Dordogne and so on. That's right. And and those places, again, have magazines uh, for expats living there. So if you were to pick one of those up, which a lot of the Maison de la Presse do sell, that would give you quite a lot of ideas as well. Now, Leslie was asking about, because I'm an American, is Uh, that people don't like you. I won't say what I think. You might know what I think, but I'll ask these guys uh, because they know a lot of Americans traveling around. What concerns do Americans have because of George Bush? Well, people are very worried, as you said, and it's unfounded. Unless you are the president, I think you will find you are very, very welcome. Yes. Yes. So I wouldn't worry about that, Leslie. Um, I have... uh, Uh, He's died now, a wonderful wine grower that we used to visit regularly in Burgundy in his cellar. And uh, people would ask this question, and he would draw a long, serious face, which would then break into a smile. He would disappear from the barrels, go and get one of his finest bottles, come back, open it, and we would gather round because he was about to say something profound. And he would simply say, we have never forgotten that you have got us out of it on more than one occasion. (laughs) So I wouldn't worry about it. And I've had the same experience that Europeans are across the board. They get out of bed wanting to like Americans. And you've got to work pretty hard, I think, to wear out your welcome in Europe. Mm-hmm. I think so. That's good to know. So please, if you're dreaming about Greece, if you're dreaming about Italy, if you're dreaming about France, do not factor in how will people accept me as an American because you're an American individual. Now, if you're a unilateralist and if you clench your fist and you go over there trying to teach them how to do it right you're not going to be very welcome anywhere because Europeans don't need us to tell them how to do it. I agree. This no, is, I know. Yeah, this is Helen here. I think the Europeans will never blame an individual for their politicians. I mean, we take people on their personal merits, and you guys will be very, very welcome all over Europe, I'm sure. And Europeans know, I think, from their own experience that uh, some uh, odd ducks become leaders of different countries, and, and people ask, how did you elect this guy in Italy, or how did you mm-hmm. elect that mm-hmm. fanatic in France? Mm-hmm. And you just cut people slack for what ends up uh, ruling their country. Well, and I would think if you're an amiable person and you love being there and love the people who are there, um, that makes a tremendous difference to um, yep. how you how you present yourself. Very that's much right. so. First and foremost, we're all individuals. Yes. So that's the most right. important thing, and especially since 9-11 and when we lost all of you over in Europe. I can assure you the talk now is just so, we are so happy to hear American voices back in Europe. So don't worry at all about that, Leslie. And this gets into something uh, Helen was talking to me about, which is a lot of times you think of yourself, I'm an American, how will I find friends here? Or I'm an English person or a Scottish person. But there's something more fundamental. What's your experience on that, Helen? Well, hi, this is Helen here again. From my experiences of living abroad, I mean, not just in Europe, but also traveling, you know, Latin America, places like that, I mean, I think that the the sheer fact that you happen to be born in a certain country, after you've traveled a while, that seems to lose all its relevance and you start to pick out your friends on who they are as people. I mean, just because they happen to be born in a certain demographic area, I mean, so what? I pick my friends. I have Spanish friends, Italian friends, Greek friends, Brazilian friends, American friends, and I forget where they're from when I'm in conversation. I mean, I don't care where they were born. If I like that person and they appeal to me on their individual merits... 
who cares where they're from? I mean, we're, we're global citizens, at least we should be nowadays anyway. Well, I'm curious about that. Okay, so we have Tricia living northeast of Rome. We have Helen living in uh, Madrid. And we have Bill living in Burgundy in a beautiful countryside of France. Tell me just, what is your circle of friends? Hi, it's Trish. My circle of friends is a mixture of Italian and British and Dutch and German. And we're all over there. It also depends where you go. I'm in the country. I'm very rural. And to be honest, I wouldn't have a lot in common with farmers in Britain. So I don't socialise a lot with the local people of evening for dinner. But I do go up on a Tuesday morning. I'm up there with the locals because that's market day. Also, the fact that I speak Italian helps me in the area because they like that they can communicate with you too. And that makes it fun. And I think it's always important to learn a bit of the language of the place you're going to go. Bill and Helen, your circle of friends? Well, it's a it's a mixture, sure, of British and French, where I live in Burgundy. People I've worked with on the barges, mostly British, not entirely. But uh, integrating, yes, a lot with the locals in terms of the gardening and the work on the house and things like this. Initially, I used to think, oh, I, I, I must integrate completely and I, I shouldn't have any contact with all these other Brits that are around. And I feel if you can't beat them, join them. I think you need to play it both ways, integrate and enjoy the other Brits that are also there. That's uh, the spirit of the EU these days anyways, I, I think. I think so, yeah. Lovely little thing that happened. It's sort of digressing a little bit, but uh, one of our French friends, just as I was about to turn my telephone off on the plane coming over here, the phone rang and I answered it and it was one of our French neighbours saying, um, uh, we're about to kill some really good chickens. Do you think you'd like a couple of them? And it was it made me laugh sitting on this plane full of everybody flying to the States and here's this little French lady saying, do you want some of these chickens? You're part of the scene. Mm -hmm. Helen. I found my experiences uh, teaching English in Europe were very, very helpful to get to know the locals, uh, especially with a conversation class. If you find a very enthusiastic Spanish or Italian or Greek person who wants to learn English, you basically end up speaking about everything, about your lives. I made some very good friends that way. And uh, Talk just a bit about the English teaching opportunities in your, in your adopted homelands. In Italy, in the, the region, it depends again on the sort of place you go. If you go into a city, then there's students normally and there's people desperate for extra tuition. Where I live, to be perfectly honest, most of the people speak a dialect of Italian that I'm kind of finding difficult to understand myself. Um, so maybe not so many opportunities there. So it does depend whether you're retiring or whether you're going with the need for an income. Right. Helen and Bill, any ideas on teaching English? I think um, the business... English use is very important. A lot of people in France now do speak a smattering of English. They certainly understand you. They say they won't, but they do. Um, that's partly because of computers as well. But people want to have their English polished up for business use. And don't take this the wrong way, that some of them would like to know some of the English expressions as opposed to some of the American expressions, which is what business English tends to be. Mm-hmm. So it's a helpful um, in that you would have with the local yes. cities. Any American person thinking of perhaps retiring to the, the south of Europe, that would be a very useful way to top up your income because you couldn't perhaps legally work for a language school, but if you put an advert in the local paper saying that you were willing to offer a few conversation classes, you would probably have a flock of people to your door. Some people would like that American accent. That would be a great way for you to integrate and earn some, some fair money as well. I mean, you can get a, a fair hourly wage on that. And integrate. That and is, integrate, That's yes. bottom line, one of the yes. real values of teaching mm -hmm. English in these countries. Leslie in Vancouver, Washington, I hope that gives you some interesting ideas. 
It certainly does, and they've been so helpful and reassured me in a number of different ways. So I'm anxious to go now. Hey, good luck, Leslie, in your vision there for becoming thank an expat. Thank you so much. Bye. Right. Bye, Bye, Leslie. Bon voyage. Bye. And I want to thank Helen Inman, who's living in Spain, and Tricia Brady, who's living in Italy, and Bill Higgs, who's living in Burgundy, all British expats. Thank you so much for sharing this information. Muchas gracias. Merci, bon voyage. Grazie. Just as long as trains keep running, restless woman I'll be. And there's a few more lonesome cities that I'd like to see. Okay, maybe uprooting yourself and moving to a foreign land is a little extreme. But if you wilt in the summer heat, have you considered cooling off at a ski lodge in South America? And, of course, along with breathtaking mountains, Latin America has plenty of enticing beaches that offer an escape year-round. Thomas Constam from Lonely Planet joins us next to share tips on skiing and surfing in the southern half of our hemisphere. And we'll also place a call to a listener in Panama who sent us an email in which he took exception to something we said on a show we did about Peru. We're always glad to get your email comments. Our address is radio at ricksteves.com. And we have a message board where you can post your thoughts on what you hear. You'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, I want to go skiing, and I want to go surfing, and I want to do it uh, speaking Spanish south of the border. We're talking about skiing and surfing in Latin America. And I've got with me Thomas Constan. And Thomas writes guidebooks for Lonely Planet. And uh, thanks for joining us, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Skiing and surfing in Latin America. One of the best places in the world for both. Come so, on, really? Of course, of course. Okay, so have, talk to me about skiing first. Well, the Andes are one of the biggest mountain ranges in the world. On top of it, this being that it's southern hemisphere, you have opposite seasons from North America. So if you're a diehard skier and the season's over in Colorado, there's Argentina and Chile just waiting for you. No jet lag, just fly south? And that's actually one of the best things because you don't have to deal with any significant time change. So yeah. if you're going for a shorter trip, you can get off the plane and you don't have to worry one or two days about being messed up with, with jet lag. You just get off and go right on the slopes. So, so now tell me about a mountain resort in the Andes. Is, is it sort of jet set chic? Is it Vail or is it more humble? Well... A few of the resorts, Las Leñas in Argentina is really considered to be the best overall, I would say. Although there are a few Chilean resorts, which are Portillo. They have a single resort there, so they're rather expensive. They are, they are chic. In Chile, there are some other mountains that are not just a single resort mountain, and therefore more people can ski. Yeah. We have Steve on the line in Portland. Hi, Steve. Thanks for your call. Hi, this is the second time I've spoken to you. We went to a presentation you gave in Portland. All right. Hey, are you dreaming about, like, skiing or surfing or what? Well, skiing, um, we're going to be in Mendoza, Argentina, and drinking some wine, and then we want to go up to Portillo, uh, up in the Andes. Mm -hmm. And we want to go skiing there, but we're going to be with some other people who are very nervous, and they, we just don't want to go at a time of year when you have to have chains. And we don't know, with, with the change of seasons there, we're going in on September, early September or September 12th, we don't know what to expect. Well, Portillo's in Chile. So you're talking about crossing through the pass from Mendoza into... Yes. Well, I would hate to, to give you an answer on how the weather conditions are going to be then, because 
it's always unpredictable. September is shoulder season, so it shouldn't be bad, but I wouldn't want to promise you that there won't be any snow on the road. You could also ski in Argentina and therefore not have to cross through the mountains. You can go to Las Leñas, which again is considered one of the best ski areas in South America, or you can go south to Bariloche. Las Leñas is more of an exclusive resort, whereas Bariloche is a town where you have many ski options. Plus, you don't need to drive yourself. There's, Bariloche, there's, yes. Yeah, there's excellent public transportation. So you wouldn't yeah. drive yourself? Are there like bus right. services? Yeah, well, you very, know, very well, nice bus one services. One of the things we wanted to do, you know that program, The Amazing Race on TV? Yes. Well, they, had, they once did that. They went from the Andes Summit at Portillo down to uh, Valparaiso. Oh, wow. And it's a good, it looks like it's a good, but a very exciting road. And we'd like to do that. I was wondering, is there any way, we, do you know how we can get historic, historic weather information for that area? Historic weather information. Um, I, I can't give you a, a set answer on that. I'm sure if if you look online, you should be able to find something decent on Chilean guidebooks weather. have climate charts. Yeah, guidebooks have climate charts, and the Chilean government is is very on top of stuff like that. So. Hey, Steve, why do you want to go all the way down there to ski? Well, we're going to be in Mendoza anyway. We're, we're okay. taking a trip to South America, and you're going in their winter. We're going in their or ski season, anyways. Ski season, but it's not exactly the ski season. Yeah, it's the, it's the it's the end. You might get you might get some real spring skiing at that point. So if you want to, you can go down there and see how it feels, and you can just rent gear at the slopes. I would imagine exactly, and, right. and very good gear on top of it. Many, yeah, many I'm of the sure areas it's a very advanced area. Okay, well, well, I'll continue looking on the internet. So far, I haven't had much luck. Hmm. Good luck, Steve. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks for calling. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye now. Talking with Thomas Constam, and Thomas writes guidebooks for Lonely Planet on Latin America. Thomas, uh, what countries do I think of when I'm thinking of skiing in South America? Argentina and Chile. It's possible to ski at one place in Bolivia. And for more hardcore skiers that want to hike and do alpine touring, as they say, all through the Andes. But the, okay, that's but, for, but for the, the adventurous But for mainstream folks. skiing? Argentina, Argentina and Chile, 100%. Argentina, And is the cost about the same as the United States? Less. The very advanced resorts are going to be expensive, okay. but the average lift ticket's about 16 Take me surfing. Where's the best surfing in Latin America? Ooh, that's, that's a hard place to pin down because you have Pacific Coast, you have Atlantic Coast. The waves are larger generally on the Pacific Coast throughout Central America. Costa Rica is a famous surf spot. But Panama, El Salvador, Nicaragua are up and coming. There aren't as many surfers in those countries. The the famous breaks in Costa Rica can get crowded. Locals mm. can get a little uh, cranky about yeah. too many too many tourists. But all the way down the coast, both Ecuador, there there are surfing schools now in Ecuador. Peru has some up and coming spots. So bigger waves on the Pacific. If you're a beginner, are you saying the Atlantic would be better? I think as a beginner, you want to look for sandy beaches. You don't want to mess with reefs or rocks. Costa Rica does have some good beginner beaches, Panama, El Salvador. But Brazil has, on the Atlantic coast, has some more moderate-sized waves, which are which are good for beginners. I know Nicaragua and El Salvador have some beautiful places uh, that will be resorts that haven't been developed yet. True. And uh, the surf there is very popular. Very popular. So is this something local people do, or is it just Europeans that come over? Originally, I believe that it was, but there are more and more. Uh, Brazil, for example, has a number of top-notch ranked surfers coming out of the country. And Ecuador, Peru are starting to have a number of, of surfers, too. 
tie that in with uh, snorkeling, swimming, great beach life, what's your favorite part in Latin America? Ooh, I think Fernando de Noronha, or Fernando de Noronha, would say with a Portuguese accent, a group of islands off the coast of Brazil, some of the best scuba diving that I've ever done. Los Roques Islands off the coast of Venezuela, fantastic scuba diving, snorkeling. Scuba diving, snorkeling, and surfing in the same areas, or is that usually... Ven- there isn't much in terms of surfing. So um, if you're really into snorkeling, it won't be the best surfing, likely. Yeah, gen- generally, there, there's a trade-off there between between waves and, and calm water, which is better for, for snorkeling. So. All right. Thomas Constam, thank you very much. Thank you. Let's go surfing and skiing yeah. south of the border. Next, we're placing a call to a listener of our Travel with Rick Steves podcasts. Matt Miller wrote us recently from Panama, and he joins us on the phone now. A while back, we did a show on South America, and our guest was talking about the various countries, and he mentioned that he figured the uh, indigenous diversity was greater in Ecuador than Peru. And uh, a man was listening to our podcast down in Panama, who happens to be married to a Peruvian, and uh, he's got a comment on that. He thinks we were off base. So it's great to have Matthew Miller on the phone. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Rick. Good. Thanks for keeping us on target here. Now, you're in Panama, right? Yeah, I'm in Panama. I'm finishing up, putting the last finishing touches on my dissertation here at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. I'm not sure if uh, people know that the United States' largest museum has a branch here in Panama since the Canal Times. Wow. Um, We've been down here, and now we get about 800 scientific visitors per year from all over the country. Uh, folks wanting to study tropical biology in one way or another, and they come down to the Smithsonian Tropical Research, like me, and do some part of the research. My research is on the genetics of uh, tropical birds. Wow. And I get to listen to your podcast every day over the Internet. You know, uh, that, not every day, but every week. That's great. And, uh, and your wife is Peruvian? That's correct. We've worked in Panama and Peru and Alaska and all sorts of different places on uh, birds. What a lush place to work if you're into biology and so on, to, to be down there in, in such a tropical wonderland, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's really nice. You know, we were just taking a, a hike. You know, it just was fun to go and, and hear toucans singing and watch for pretty hummingbirds and stuff that I, I think I all too often take for granted. It's a pretty great place to work. You know, this is just a, an aside, but I think about the tropics, and I think of how hot it can be in... California or Texas or something, and then I, I think you're even, like, you're right on the equator almost, and is it uncomfortably hot most of the year, or do you just feel like you live in a terrarium and it's uh, it's just a wonderland that's roll up your sleeves and, and comfortable? Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, because actually I was just watching a TV show the other night where, they, where somebody was talking about moving to Florida and they didn't want to move there because it was so hot, and I was thinking, you know, I'm a lot further south, but I don't feel like it's that bad. You know, I think actually... One of the benefits that we get is because we're so close to the equator, the sun pretty much sets at about 6 o'clock every day, and that really tempers the heat. So, you know, our daytime temperatures can get into the 90s, and the humidity is clearly off the chart. I mean, we're right on the ocean here. But surprisingly, when it gets dark, it gets a lot more comfortable. But it takes a little bit of acclimatization, that's for sure. So like Neil Diamond said, thank the Lord for the nighttime. Exactly. You and your wife were listening to our podcast, and your wife, being Peruvian, uh, uh, caught a problem. I suppose you did too. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, not a problem, and I and I don't mean to. I actually love Ecuador. It was uh, the first South American country that I visited, and and the first South American country that I did field work in. So uh, so don't get me wrong, but oh, yeah. my wife is Peruvian and very pro-Peruvian. 
uh, looked at me. We were both shaking our heads and said, you know, there's just no way there can be. I mean, I'm looking at my map right now, and Ecuador is, is, is fairly small compared to Peru. There's just no way there can be more indigenous diversity in, in Ecuador relative to Peru. And I, this isn't my field. I guess I, I have an interest in, in human diversity, and it's hard to say who's more diverse than the other. But if we look at language diversity, it's clear that Peru, in terms of indigenous language, has more language diversity than maybe any country, with the exception of Brazil, in the Americas. I mean, I don't know very much about Brazil. But they've got two main highland indigenous language groups that are quite distinct, Aymara speakers and Quechua speakers. And then amongst each of those groups and other groups, there's a lot of other diversity. And in the Amazon, we worked in a community a couple years ago that the one little community, I mean, this is a little community in the middle of nowhere, they had two different language groups. One was a river-based tribe. They were fishermen, and they had their own language group. And the other was a forest-based group. They, they lived off of what they hunted in the forest and their agriculture. And they had two very distinct languages. They told us what the names of our birds were in each language, and the one name was completely different than the other name. So there's just a lot of diversity anywhere, but that was that was something that you know, kind of struck me the wrong way. Sure. Now, Matthew, do you think you can uh, conclude that different languages means different ethnicity? Oh, boy, that's a polemic topic. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it has to be a proxy, right? But uh, not entirely. One of the great things about Panama and being here in Panama is that, folks, this is really kind of the 31 flavors of ethnic history. Panama has actually a lot of different indigenous groups that were really independent. They've got the very famous Kuna group that has their moles, that, uh, those are the tapestries that they weave, but then they also have Ambara and Nogle Bugle peoples, and each one has a very different history. And then you throw on top of that uh, West Indians and other people of African ancestry that came here, and also Asians that came here to work on the canal, and then Indians and uh, Hasidic Jews and people of Spanish descent, and then also North Americans. And wow, you've got a really big mix. So, uh, not exactly because Spanish is the de facto language here. Right. It obviously isn't a proxy for everything, but uh, sometimes I think it helps. People forget how many languages they are, and we're not talking little dialects or accents. We're talking distinct languages. Uh, you did a little study. It looks like here in your email, you went to www.ethnolog.com and found that Peru had 93 living languages and Ecuador had 23. That's correct. And, it, yeah, and you know, people who study language make, like to make little trees out of them, and that's yeah. what I do with my genes, and so I guess that's why I have a little bit of interest. I, I take the genes, and it tells me something about relationship. And people who study language do the same thing, and that's how they made this count of 93 languages. Fascinating. Now, you said also that Quito is your favorite Latin American capital. Quito is the capital of Ecuador. Why, why do you like it so much? Well, it's, you know, this interesting mix of old town and new town. Um, it's a small capital relative to, like, Lima or Mexico City, which are just so big that it takes you four hours just to cross them in a taxi or something like that. But uh, Quito, you can still walk. You know, they used to have transportation strikes when I was working there, and so I often would get back from a trip and have to carry my luggage from old town to new town, which is essentially crossing a big part of the downtown area, and I could do it walking. So uh, hmm. it's nice. The old town is a, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site from its colonial days. And the new town, for, for young, the backpacker tourist-type crowd, 
has a lot to offer, lots of Internet cafes, lots of different world food. You know, you can get sushi or you can get Thai food or anything at, at reasonable prices and discotheques and stuff like that. So there's really something for anybody there, and it's at very reasonable prices for tourists. I mean, they've dollarized, and that has changed the economy and probably made it harder for a lot of Ecuadorians. But for the traveler, you can see a whole lot of the Andes. Huh. right out of Quito. And you're in the Andes. I mean, you're really in an inner Andean basin when you're in Quito. I was just in El Salvador, and they've dollarized to there. I didn't realize Ecuador has just the American dollar as its currency. Yeah, so they did that in 2001. They switched over. The motivation for that was that while I was doing my fieldwork in 2000, it went from 8,000 uh, units of their currency, which was a super rate, to 25,000 in a couple, a matter of months. I mean, it was like two months. And so you can imagine it's pretty hard to keep up with prices and keep up with people's salaries and, and all sorts of things. And so they felt like it made sense for them to dollarize in order to, you know, have a more stable currency. But obviously, that makes it really tough on people who are very invested in the local economy. So they just could not stabilize their currency. They basically gave up on it and just took the dollar because the dollar yep. is going to be stable, regardless of what a basket case their monetary policy must be. And uh, now it's stable, but it's hard for the local people. To be honest with you, I've never really understood that because in my mind, the mathematics makes it so that if the currency rate's the same, it doesn't work. But But no. my wife has tried to explain it to me that you know, there's a lot of goods and services that when you have a different currency, what happens is you have two standards. So like your cup of rice in your local currency is very inexpensive. But all of a sudden, when you dollarize, that rice has to be valued at the global price of, of a cup of rice, let's say. Hmm. And so what that does is it, it raises the price on, on everything. And so it makes it a little bit harder for people who are really in an informal economy mm -hmm. to make ends meet. Do you know any other countries that are dollarized besides Ecuador well, and El we're Salvador? We're functionally dollarized here in Panama and have been, I just, I don't know how long, but uh, I carry greenbacks in my wallet. They call them Balboas, hmm. and they print their own coins. They have their own coins that are identical in size, and it's fun when I go back home. I use them in the ah. vending machine to give somebody a treat, but it's a completely dollarized economy. Matthew, thanks so much for the call, and uh, before we go, how much longer will you be in Panama? Well, I hope to finish my dissertation up in the next couple of months and go back and defend it. But my wife is now 20 weeks pregnant, and we've got a great doctor down here, and we're going to be uh, having a little girl here in, in Panama. And then after things get settled, we'll be moving on to my next opportunity sometime at the end of this year. It's so intriguing, Latin America to me. We've talked to so many expats down there, and uh, i got to get down there someday. It just sounds Rick, like... Please come to, I mean, Panama, you wouldn't believe it. So I live in the old canal zone, and it's, right. it's funny because, you know, we turned this over, and it became Panamized uh, right huh. around the year 2000. And now I've got retirees in my apartment building, and I, I go to the grocery store, and I swear to God I hear more English than I hear Spanish. Oh, it's, yeah. It's unbelievable. And if you come down, please send me an email, and I will give you the cook's tour of Panama. And we've been everywhere. My wife and I have done field work. Literally, from Cueva Island to Bocas to uh, Darien, you name it, we've been there. And we'll, we'll be more than happy to either point you in the right direction or give you as much time as you'd like. Well, Matthew Miller from Panama, thanks for giving us a little insight into the uh, ethnographic diversity of Latin America and also uh, some of the economic changes going on. Uh, it was fun talking to you, Rick. Well, it sounds like you've got lots to look forward to. Thanks so much for uh, enjoying our podcast, and uh, thanks for uh, sharing a little bit about 
trying to better understand Latin America. Well, thank you, Rick. Take okay. care. Bye, Matthew. South America, take it away. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback, archived audio on demand, and podcast extras. You'll find it in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.